This is an original branded podcast produced by GTM Creative Strategies in collaboration with Vertzilla. I think the first time that I reported on the issue was when California was considering its standards, um, but there's been so many states, it's been a little bit hard to keep track of all the stories we have at this point. That's Emma Faringer-Merchant. She's a staff writer at Green Tech Media. Lately, she's been reporting on a variation of the same story again and again. The last state became the first state to commit to 100% clean energy. So we'll have to rely on solar, wind, geothermal, and other clean energy sources. Hawaii passed its 100% renewables law way back in 2015, so it was really at the vanguard of those laws from the state perspective that now feels like a very long time ago now that we have so many other states involved. So we're moving forward. We're forging ahead with 100% clean energy, Senate Bill 100. It's the most far-reaching, ambitious proposal of its kind in the nation, in the entire world. In 2018, you saw a lot more momentum with California passing its 100% clean energy by 2045 law. And we've also seen a lot of cities and other states. We have seven states and counting that have some form of 100% policy. And it's not just states. Actors at every level, countries, states, cities, utilities, tech giants, they're all setting ambitious targets. And there are lots of variations on the theme. 100% renewable energy, 100% clean energy, 100% carbon-free energy. But they all require ambition and a lot of planning. I'm Lisa Bartfei. In this episode, the first in a three-part series from Vertzilla, we're exploring the causes and consequences of this 100% trend. So what's driving this policy wave? Emma explains. Now that we're starting to see more states and cities get involved, I think it's really a two-pronged change. One, I would say, was the election of Donald Trump. Obviously, there's been an abdication of climate change leadership on the federal level, which has really compelled a lot of subnational actors to step up um, in the wake of that leadership. And then also um, with the proposal of the Green New Deal, we saw more of an interest at the federal level about considering these goals. And I think that that's also inspired a lot of states to start considering um, what it would look like to transition to 100% clean energy or 100% renewables as well. Did it feel like this was the year when the trend really accelerated? Yeah, we saw a lot of movement in 2019. I felt like I was covering for a period of time there a new 100% announcement or law almost every week. That might be hyperbolic, but that's what it felt like um, on my end. Now we have states including Maine, which has a 100% renewable electricity goal. New Mexico has a 100% zero carbon electricity mandate for investor-owned utilities by 2045. Puerto Rico has a 100% renewable electricity mandate. Um, Washington, D.C. also has a mandate. So we're seeing a lot more and different types of jurisdictions implementing either targets, mandates, goals. They're all different types of policies. We're now to the point where about a quarter of the U.S. population lives in a state or locality where they are under the purview of one of these goals, mandates, or targets. So you've really seen it spread around the country at all different levels of government. So what kind of stories are you following as a result of this policy momentum? Like, is there a story right now that has caught your attention? 
One story I think that really sort of indicates the tension that's happening right now is something that I've been covering in Massachusetts. There is a disagreement between the utility national grid and solar developers in the state about how fast solar projects can be connected to the grid. Massachusetts has ambitious clean energy goals and and distributed generation and community solar projects are a big part of meeting it. And as you saw with the state's incentive programs, these developers flooded the market and really increased the amount of solar that they had planned in the state. And National Grid was sort of like, whoa, this is too fast. We're not ready for this. While developers were saying, well, why aren't you ready for this? We knew it was coming. These laws have been passed. So National Grid actually paused one gigawatt of projects, which is a large amount anywhere, including in Massachusetts, and said that they needed to do a study. So you're having some tensions about the nitty-gritty details of how this is actually going to play out. You have these big, splashy policies that are in the news a lot, but the developers, um, utilities, and policymakers are really now, as I said, starting to figure out how to actually make it happen and what that looks like. It's a little bit less sexy for, for news, but I think that it's now comes the really important part of what that implementation looks like and how you can speed it up when there are stakeholders who would like to go a little bit slower and stakeholders who want to move as quickly as possible. Emma Ferner Merchant is a staff writer at Green Tech Media. Anytime we can slip into our secret language. Det skulle jag, jag skulle gärna göra intervjun på svenska, men jag tror att vår publik skulle ha svårt att hänga med. Ja, bra. Jag har bott i Trollhättan i många år så. That's Jussi Häkkinen, Director of Growth and Development for the Americas at the Finnish technology company Vartzilla. Jussi got his start in the power business in the 80s. If anyone can say how these 100% commitments will play out in the electricity system, it's him. I think these are good and important goals for, for the mankind, but uh, they are really often set for 2050 or so. It is quite far, so today it's of course easy to commit to something that should happen by 2050. But how I, I see it today, not many people seem to have a plan yet on how, how to really get there. Ah, the details. When policymakers put these 100% targets in place, the details are often missing. They're goals without a plan. And if countries, states, cities and utilities around the world are going to meet these goals, they'll need to make some hard choices. Choices about planning, modeling, and optimizing the right mix of resources. We spoke with Yossi about how he's thinking through them. Today, the, everybody's adding wind and solar power uh, with increasing speeds because they are extremely competitive and you don't need to subsidize those anymore like Germany did in the, in the good old days. The thinking is that let's just add wind and solar often solar in many regions, and then we will add storage so that we don't need to have any anything else there. The problem is that uh, people tend to try to keep the old inflexible fossil fuel-based power system in the bottom and kind of add these uh, layers on top of the cake. And like we have seen already in Germany, we have seen in California, Problems arise already at relatively early stages, so it has to be part of the plan that uh, these uh, fossil fuel inflexible plants are gradually retired and then replaced by flexible gas generation. 
So could you describe for me a system that would incorporate this kind of flexibility, the relationship between renewables, batteries, and flexible gas? We see that the system has four main functions. The first function is that you need to produce the renewable energy, electricity, and uh, globally we see that wind and solar power are those that are going to take the biggest part of this task because they have become extremely affordable. Actually, they are the lowest cost of new generation in areas where you have decent wind and solar conditions. This part of the system is weather dependent and it is not dispatchable the traditional way that you can start a plant. How would you start a solar plant in the night? This is the part that will produce power, but it will go up and down uh, on a variable path all the time. And you have to overbuild this wind and solar power quite a lot because they do not produce on full power all the time. Then you have the, the balancing, uh, balancing of the system uh, function. This function keeps the frequency and the voltage uh, at the set value at all times. This is using some kind of storage. Even today already battery storage is relatively competitive in this task because you don't need very large batteries in this one. You, you just need to be able to rapidly charge, discharge, and, and thereby maintaining the, the system in, in balance. The third cornerstone is then the energy shifting. Uh, you will need to shift uh, mainly solar but also some wind power from those times when you have too much of those to the periods when you don't have enough. For example solar it is obvious that the sun will rise in the morning and then you will during the day charge the batteries and during the night, night you will use that electricity then. So this shifting corner will use the renewable power when needed. And uh, today, this is the corner that is the problem because te technologies are there, but they are too expensive for this purpose. So the learning curves of batteries, etc., they, they, they are needed to make this one economically viable. And the fourth and final corner is the dispatchable power corner. This is the cornerstone that enables weather management. You can have calm periods if you are wind power dependent. You can, if you are solar dependent, you, you have winter, darker winters at some areas. You can have monsoon uh, rains for several weeks that you don't get much solar, etc. And of course, if you are hydro dependent, you can have dry seasons. So to make the system reliable and ensure security of supply, you need to have a dispatchable component. This corner, we could call it flexible generation as well. This is uh, dispatchable and it is uh, something that uses natural gas during the path and then at some point in the future, when decided, it will be then converted to use uh, renewable fuels. So this is, a, I would call it, weather management corner, which allows you then to uh, not to build a, a hugely oversight storage uh, in the system. Well, then what are the consequences to our grid planning and to the power mix if we don't get this flexibility piece right? So I would say the uh, major issue is connected to the unwillingness to retire old inflexible assets. And this then leads to that we keep burning fossil fuels. Like uh, I mentioned, Germany, the f level of CO2 in the power generation has only gone down 16% uh, since year 2000, even though they have added 100 gigawatts, uh, m more than the load of capacity, renewable capacity. So 
it, it just is not a good match. And uh, by replacing these inflexible assets with uh, flexible gas, flexible gas generation, uh, you will enable free flow of renewables, uh, saving of fossil fuels and uh, fast movement uh, towards the clean power system. And from a policy perspective, these 100% targets are happening so quickly. Uh, But things have never moved this quickly in the power sector. It sounds like you believe we have the tools to speed up the transition and do it right? Yeah, I think we will get it right. Uh, The technologies are there today mostly. The only thing that needs to be uh, happening is that the storage uh, needs to get cheaper. It is a little bit too expensive still today for shifting large quantities of mainly solar power from day day to night. I can see the political will. It is there. Uh, I don't think it will go away. There will be a push from from that side to make things happen. And I think it, it will be the driver, main driver for, for the whole uh, thing. Uh, wait, while we wait for storage to get uh, cheaper, to get more economical, uh, we can st- start to move ahead by adding renewables. Wind and solar are extremely competitive today. Cheapest uh, new form of generation in areas where you have a decent solar and wind resource. So you can add those and then gradually retire the uh, inflexibility of the old power system and increase the flexibility by adding flexible gas generation and later that storage when it gets uh, reasonably competitive. I think the core point here is that the political will is there and I cannot see it going away. These goals are set everywhere right now and uh, if you don't set such a goal, you are (laughs) almost not doing the right thing. So I think this trend will just speed up and probably we will see things moving faster than in the current uh, target setting because the plan is not yet there for most most of the areas and nations that have set the goals, they are working on the plans. All the tools to model the future power system expansion are available. Uh, These are, of course, uh, comprehensive software tools that use supercomputers, and people are gradually learning how to use them properly. So this really enables us to understand what kind of power systems we should be building. I think we will definitely get there, and I would almost predict that uh, we will do it faster than what is the current target set for most places. Getting from 80% renewable energy to 100% renewable energy is a big challenge. Um, And there's a wide agreement that 80% is very achievable, but the last 20% is very difficult. Uh, what will it take in terms of technology and flexibility to make the transition to that last 20% bit? Yeah, we can see in all our modeling that when you get to 80, 85, 90%, that's where it stops because uh, you have to manage the weather and you need to have this dispatchable, flexible gas generation component in the system. So the last step on this path is then to convert this uh, flexible component to burn renewable fuels. These fuels will be available in the future in large quantities because we do not only need to decarbonize the the power generation business, we need to decarbonize the aviation industry, the the ships, the transportation, etc. So uh, gradually the oil and gas industry will start to offer more and more renewable fuels alongside the fossil fuels. They will of course cost a little more, But this is what we want and we need the clean environment. 
What's your time frame? When do you think most of these plants will actually achieve 100% renewable energy? I think the, the time frame is such that the, the, there will be a lot of renewables added during the next 10 years. We will get to very high numbers in, in many areas of the world. Then gradually the storage will start to come and when we also get uh, rid of the inflexibility of the old power systems, we will be very close to 100% systems by 2040. And I think the big question here is that uh, what is the pace of the oil and gas industry bringing forward the renewable fuels, renewable methane, renewable methanol, so which can be distributed in large quantities through the existing gas, etc. networks. So I, I think that will be then the final step. And when it will ha happen, we will see. But I think that we can easily be there by 2040. That's Yussi Heikinen, Director of Growth and Development for the Americas at Bartzilla. Yussi, thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to an episode produced by GTM Creative Strategies in collaboration with Vertzilla. Vertzilla creates smart, flexible power technologies to enable a cleaner grid and put the world on a path to 100% renewable energy. They're helping clients worldwide meet their clean energy goals in an efficient and cost-effective way. To learn more about UC's idea on how to move forward on 100% goals and how to model for a clean energy future, follow the links in the show notes.